We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Blue Wire. Welcome back. This is the Big Blue Banter, New York Giants podcast. I'm Dan Schneier. I'm joined by my co-host, Nick Pilato. Today, we're going to be breaking down the latest Giants loss, Week 14 to the Eagles, Monday Night Football, from the All-22 Coaches Film Angle. As always, we like to kick these things off by breaking down the film. And for me, the key standout after breaking down the film versus the broadcast angle, I should say, was the defense, man. Uh, and I was impressed, and more so I was impressed with individual players because obviously you can look at this the positive way or the negative way. The glass half empty way is, well, the defense really didn't really struggle to adjust in the second half. And the, on the flip side, the Eagles coaching their offense did adjust and took advantage of the Giants not adjusting. And that's kind of, you know, the glass half empty. And, you know, it is alarming a bit for James Betcher, who I have defended in the past, Nick, and I know you have as well. But he does have his warts, especially with this crew. But for me, it's the positives that I saw with some of the younger players on the defense, especially in the first half. But, you know, even at times in the second half, because remember, the Giants were punting the ball in a ridiculous rate. I mean, they were had multiple three and out possessions, something we don't we didn't really see. We haven't really been used to since Daniel Jones took over. But in this game, there were tons of three and outs, and that puts the defense in a stressful position. It gives the offense on the opposing side more plays and more of a way to, you know, expose some of those adjustments, maybe you could say at halftime. Because again, a lot of what the Eagles did and found success with in that second half, and a lot of what I'm you know, if you look at it from that glass half empty standpoint, Nick, is that, you know, it, it was deeper into the game, late, late third, early fourth, overtime. You know, the Giants defense was still holding up for a lot of that third quarter until they just kept being being put on the field too often. So for me, I'm coming away with a more half empty outlook after this game, specifically on the younger core players who are going to have to step up in 2020 if they do, you know, 
want to become a team that can win football games. How about for you, Nick? What was your overall takeaway and what changed, or I, I should say, what was the biggest difference from watching this versus watching the broadcast angle? It was the same takeaway in the sense of adjustments in the second half. And I do agree 100% with what you're saying. And you're not wrong at all. They're, they were tired, the defense. But I still feel James Betcher could have done a much better job on some of those longer drives, eliminating the flats, eliminating the quick screen passes to the wide receivers and, to, of course, to Boston Scott, who who knew Boston Scott was the ingredient to uh, get that offense just sparked and going. And the team neglected to do that, and then they neglected to focus on Zach Ertz. And that was in the red zone. That was in basically really any area of the field with just simple route concepts to clear out things that aren't that the Giants have seen plenty of times, that any football team has seen plenty of times. And then you hear reports after the game that players said that there were defensive calls that they never practiced. And that's, again, a dereliction of duty on the coaching staff, and we have defended Betcher. But, I mean, how do you not kind of just get egg and just shit all over your face when you have your players calling you out like that? You got Jenkins texting at practice, which is a whole nother thing, or tweeting or whatever. And you just look at this team, and it's like, it's falling apart at the seams at this point. And I think the writing is on the wall. But when it came to the game, it was uh, I was sitting there in the broadcast angle saying they're not adjusting. And then it was apparent in the All-22 as well. So it's just a disappointment for uh, for the entire squad. I did see some positive things, though, from some of the younger players. I thought Baker had a better game. I thought Love had a better game. We'll get into that a little bit later. But uh, it's just a shit show with this with this team as a whole right now. Yeah, and there were things I liked about Betcher in general when he came over from Arizona. Had three in a row top six defenses with him. What I thought was only kind of middling personnel with the exception yeah. of Chandler Jones and Patrick Peterson. But at the same time, some of these things, you know, there are other things that have popped up in his tenure with the Giants that give me pause for concern. This is one of them. Obviously, this was not a good second half from him from a coaching standpoint. Obviously, like you said, you know, players not <laughs> making making those statements is, is alarming. And so I'm not fully tied to him anyway. And again... If Shermer does get fired, Betcher's going to go anyway. And if they don't fire Pat Shermer, well, then they're certainly going to fire someone else and make him the scapegoat. And that would likely be Betcher because he's on the defensive side of the ball. So either way, it's tough to imagine envision him coming back. So they're going to have to find someone else creative to run their defense. But the issue is they've really started to gear this personnel in the last two draft classes towards Betcher's style of defense. So really they're going to have to find someone who runs a similar type of system to Betcher. I don't think that's going to be all too hard of a, or difficult of an issue or a problem, I should say, because I really do feel like defenses in the NFL are a lot more, vanilla is not the right word, but a lot more consistent, I would say, than offenses. There's a lot less variation. Um, so I feel like, for the most part, they can probably make a change there and it won't create too much of a disruption with the personnel that they've built. But, you know, Nick, it was interesting because this is a game that they should have won. And it's fair to say, I think, that coaching was the reason they lost this game because just because on both sides of the ball, the offense didn't adjust in the second half. They couldn't move the ball at all with with Manning and what was out there. And on the flip side, they allowed the Eagles to adjust. And it's funny because this week there's been a lot of positive fanfare around Carson Wentz and this supposed amazing comeback because in the end his numbers look pretty good but you know I thought the same thing after watching the all 22 coaches film that I thought after watching the broadcast it's a lot of screen passes a lot of screens to the receivers and the running backs a lot of yards after catch and a few defensive breakdowns uh seem to seem to boy you know seem to prop up his yardage total and his stats in the end I really didn't see that many 
NFL caliber throw or really impressive NFL caliber throws from Wentz. I came away still pretty unimpressed by what I saw. And overall, I think I feel like he's regressed a lot this season. So we'll see what happens with that. But again, this Eagles team is not very good. They're not making any kind of run in the playoffs. That's pretty clear after barely beating the Giants and losing to the the Dolphins in consecutive weeks. But about the Giants, let's dive into the game here. And I want to start with breaking down the first possession on the defensive side of the ball for the Giants. Um, And it was 11-36 in quarter one, for those of you following along. The Giants forced the Eagles into a third and 13. And it looked to me, you know, like Leonard Williams really did a good job here. He cleanly beats Lane Johnson around around one edge. And then Marcus Golden goes unblocked for the sack. Was this just a great design by Betcher early in the game, or was it more of a mistake on the Eagles' part? Well, just before that, it was a third and eight, and then Jason Peters helped out the Giants uh, with a false start. And if you look at that third and eight play, you see totally different defensive look because those are two totally different situations. It's a third and long and then a third and very long. In the third and eight play, you see Alec Ogletree sugaring that A-gap. So basically, he just goes into that A-gap, and that's going to command the center and the guard of that side to at least focus on Ogletree, and he can either bail there or he can blitz. Since Peters... False starts. What happens? Third and 13. Nobody in the A-gap because obviously they're not going to run the football unless they're just surrendering the down. So Betcher basically lines up, and I thought it was a a smart way. He put three people, instead of Ogletree being in the A-gap, he was off the edge of Leonard Williams. He put three defensive personnel on the right side where the running back was, and then the two on the left side. So the Eagles offensive line slide right but Peters never accounts for Marcus Golden. So that unblocked defender right there obviously is not supposed to happen. The alignment of Lorenzo Carter at that four eye technique, which is right inside the inside shoulder of the tackle, that is going to basically distract Peters and just nobody accounted for Golden. I think what Peters thought was that the running back, who's Miles Sanders, a rookie in this point, was supposed to come across the line of scrimmage and get Marcus Golden. But that did not happen because Al Ogletree was on the other side. So that kind of demanded his attention at the same time. So I think it was a good scheme. Al Ogletree never blitzed. He just backed off the coverage. Sanders went that way and then just released into his route. Carson Wentz had no chance. Yeah, and that was some of the good. Now flip it over to the other side of the ball. And we got quarter still in the first quarter, 142 remaining. We finally saw some interesting – I mean, it's not finally because I feel like we see a handful of these every game. The problem is consistently stringing them together adjusting at halftime, things like that. But, you know, Giants did a great job here, I thought, to use motion to get the defense going to the left and moving with Barkley before the snap. And then and then this motion, you know, falls through after snap. And then they run Shepard around the other end. So what did you I, – you, I know you specifically like this play. What did you see on this that, that intrigued you? Yeah, man, he has Caden Smith to his left and Barkley offset to his right with that, like, fake flare pass to Saquon Barkley who released left. And that demanded attention, obviously. And then it was just a quick end around to Shep, who came to the backside of Manning. I mean, I thought it was just a creative play call that got the defense flowing towards Barkley, because you're going to focus on Barkley, while having Caden Smith, Mike Remmers, and John Alapio open up in space for Shepard, where there's not as much attention. But it was a nice pickup of about eight on that play to set up that second and two. And it's just something that we we see, like you said, once or twice a game, something maybe a little bit more different than what Pat Shermer is married to all the time. But this was just a good way to kind of demand the attention of the Eagles in one direction, have them flow that way, and then just hand off a little quick, little quick handoff right to Shep behind. Because I think that that little play action, that fake by or not play action, but that little uh, that little pump fake to Barkley really got the linebackers looking that way as well. So it's a good way to get a 
good playmaker in space with some blockers, something that the Giants just uh, don't have don't have that situation enough. Yeah, and it's interesting you mentioned that, Nick, because this is something, or I should say, it, this goes back to, for those of you who have listened to this podcast since its birth, you know that we've been saying this offense needs to be, once they drafted Barkley, which is around the time we started this, we've, we've said consistently this offense needs to be, needs to use pre-snap motion and things of that nature as its base. The, it, all good NFL offenses, in mm-hmm. my opinion, should be using a ton of pre-snap motion like you see from Andy Reid and like you've seen from you know Matt Nagy when he's gotten to little play-calling grooves and offensive grooves, even with Trubisky as his quarterback. But with an offense that features Saquon Barkley, it's even more prescient to me where you really have to use this pre-snap motion. You have to use plays designed to either get the ball to Barkley where he's running wide or he's in motion wide. Or using that as a fake, like you said, fake flare to Barkley. All these situations need to, you need to use the use him to your advantage. He's a weapon. Opposing defenses are scheming to take him out of the game, so use him to your advantage and get them moving one way, and then do something the other way. And that's something that happens sometimes with this offense, like you said. But it's just not a staple of this offense. It's a lot more vanilla than that it appears. So. Obviously, to me, it feels like when they move forward with this current roster and some of the core players, hopefully the next coaching staff on the offensive side of the ball will use this more to their advantage and more often. And we'll see if that remains the case. But moving forward, Nick, we got to play right after that or very soon after that. First play of the, first, of the second quarter, Fifteen, uh, obviously 15 minutes remaining. Eli hits Slayton on the third and 13, and Slayton turns that into a 35-yard touchdown after the catch. What did you see on that play that intrigued you? Giants and 11 personnel, something that we see a lot with this team. And the Eagles were showing blitz pre-snap with, while uh, the wide receivers were all being pressed by the Eagles defense backs, except for Darius Slayton, which was a little confusing to me because he's someone with speed and he's a rookie. And I feel like he's done really well at the line of scrimmage, but still you would think Schwartz, Jim Schwartz, the defensive coordinator of the Eagles, would like to kind of press him and knock him off his route, but he did not. He was going up against Darby, who was about six yards off of Slayton. And the Eagles bring six at the snap. And it's a slant flat combo to the boundary and double slants to the field. And that's Tate and Slate inside is to the field. Protection held up well on this play. Barkley did a really good job picking Jenkins up on the blitz right in the hole. He came right around Nigel Bradham to try to disguise himself and confuse Saquon. But Saquon did much better in pass protection in this game and especially on this rep. And the ball was right on the outside shoulder of Slate. I'm not sure if it was a bad throw by Manning or if it was just... Uh, because Manning maybe accounted for Darby kind of coming on the inside because he had that six yards of separation at the snap. And he just put the ball right on that outside shoulder, and Slayton did a fantastic job just spinning off of Darby's would-be tackle attempt and running with that breakaway speed that he has to basically just score that touchdown. I mean, it was pretty that it was that simple. They brought the blitz. Darby just failed to make a tackle. If Darby makes that tackle, then it's, what, it's going to be a fourth down because... It would be, what, fourth and seven or something like that, fourth and six maybe, something along those lines. But uh, it was just a good heady play by a veteran to get the ball out of his hands, protection held up, and Slayton made a play. And that's what this offense needs, and it just does not happen enough. Yeah, and you know what, Nick, for me on this play, what stood out is, first of all, I agree with you. It's hard to tell if Eli if Eli was purposely placing that ball in that spot so Slayton could break back and, and work after the catcher, but it was just kind of an off-target throw by Eli because, you know, there were several off-target throws by Eli in this game from a ball placement standpoint. But to me, I'm not gonna give I'm not gonna view it in the sense of Darby failed to make a tackle, failed to make a play. I'm gonna view it in the sense of 
It was a freaking nifty play by Slayton to make that mm-hmm. catch and transition really quickly to ducking under that tackle and then using his foot to break away and get and create that breakaway speed and that second gear that he has. And really, for me, this is just one of those plays that, that stands out to me because it's like a un, it's an un, it's I'm trying to figure out the best way to say this. It's not anything specific from a skill set standpoint that you could see or point to from Slayton. It's kind of just one of those plays that he makes that you're like, okay, big players make big plays like this, and it's kind of intuitive for them. It seemed very intuitive for him uh, to kind of make that patch duck under, break back towards the boundary, and create that separation from the defender to really break, turn that into a touchdown. So, you know, like you said, there's a lot of times with a lot of different players where the outcome of that play will be a catch for six or seven yards, a tackle and a fourth and uh, fourth and five, fourth and six situation that leads to either a field goal attempt, a fourth down try or a punt. But for Slayton, a player who was a fifth round pick, a lot of people didn't know about going into the draft process. It turns into a touchdown. And I think that speaks to who he is. Uh, before we break down a few other of the big plays from the offense, and they were limited to the first half, unfortunately, for this Giants team after another loss, their 11th of the season. We're going to take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsors. Talking about erectile dysfunction isn't easy. Usually, we just brush it off or blame ourselves saying things like, Heh, I lost my mojo. Or, we avoid talking about it altogether with excuses like, Honey, I had a long day at work. Or, sorry, I'm just not feeling it. But with Roman, it is easy to talk about it. With a real doctor who can prescribe real medication. It's simple, safe, and totally discreet. With Roman, you can get a free online evaluation and ongoing care for erectile dysfunction, all from the comfort and privacy of your home. Doesn't that sound fantastic? The doctor will work with you to find the best treatment plan if medication is appropriate. And Roman will ship that medication to you with free two-day shipping. The whole process is straightforward, simple, and discreet. Getting started is simple as well. Just go to GetRoman.com slash BlueWire and complete an online visit. Erectile dysfunction used to be tough to tackle, but now there's Roman. Complete an online visit today to connect with a doctor and take care of it. Just go to GetRoman.com slash BlueWire to get a free online visit and free two-day shipping. That's GetRoman.com slash BlueWire for a free visit to get started. GetRoman.com slash BlueWire. All right, Nick, let's get into the next big play from this Giants offense in the first half. And there was 8.51 remaining in the second quarter when Eli Manning channeled the 2011 version of himself, in my opinion, where it's a perfect ball. Eli Manning to Darius Slayton, 42-yard shot on second and seven. Break this one down, Nick. Ah, oh, man, what a dime to Slayton on the sideline, Giants fans. I mean, it was perfectly placed on that upfield shoulder right when Eli hits that back footy release. Ah, oh, just so nostalgic for us Giants fans but hey most of the time on this route Slayton was covered up the sideline and he started in about plus splits of about five yards off the number so that probably was not safety help and I'm sure that Darby I believe was the man in coverage I'm sure he was aware of that but once the ball's released man 
Darius Slayton, you're talking about a fifth-round pick, and I know we praise him on this podcast, and it's all warranted. Once that ball is released, he accelerates and tracks the ball so smoothly right into his hands and gets both of his feet in bound, showing body control with a lot of momentum. I mean, he just possesses that top-end speed to blow past defensive backs on this nine route, and this was a huge gain in this game. I mean, the protection was good on this play as well, and I just... You know, I didn't think Eli had that kind of velocity. I mean, I know the ball was from the near hash, but the velocity and the placement, it was a beautiful throw. And it's great to see Slayton just, you know, ride him with the corner and just separate just with that acceleration, that second gear that he has. I mean, it's really, really impressive stuff. Yeah, I mean, Eli Manning in this game from a velocity standpoint impressed me. And I, it's not much to say. We, we, we know the book at the Eli is closed for the Giants, um, obviously, but you know, it was a really rainy, windy, crappy game, and the ball did not come out of Carson Wentz's hand very cleanly, in my opinion, especially in the first half. He was well off target in a lot of spots, but for Eli, it just seems to be, no matter how old he gets, 38 years old, he still throws a really clean ball with a lot of velocity, um, and obviously that's not enough for him at this point in his career. He's, you know, not making, he's not seeing the field as well as he used to uh, from a processing standpoint, and Obviously, he has no mobility or, or ability to create when the play breaks down. But And so there's obvious drawbacks to Eli Manning. Uh, and we're not advocating for him to be the starter again or anything like that. But I mean, no, it's interesting on this play to see that ball come out so clean. And it's a shot that I would like to think Jones would have made, but I'm not so positive because the ball has to have that amount of velocity, I think, to complete the throw because there wasn't really much room, like you said, from a separation standpoint. So... Definitely an interesting play. And then finally, let's dive into the touchdown. Third and eight, just 38 seconds remaining in the second quarter. A 55-yard bomb to Slayton. And after the play, Eli is just jumping, celebrating in joy with his teammates. Even if if that's his last joyful, amazing moment with the Giants, I'm just happy for him that he got to experience it. But what did you? What happened on this play, and how did the Eagles possibly allow this to happen? I mean, it's a third and eight. It's just a breakdown in coverage. And I'm trying to figure out, like, what coverage – they're exactly in. They're showing a lot of blitz at the line of scrimmage, trying to make sure Eli gets the ball out of his hands really quickly. And then they just back off the blitz, and it looks like they're going right to the sticks in a cover two type of situation because you see that deep half safety because they're showing cover one or something along those lines in the beginning. You see that deep half safety go towards the stack side, the field side, and just kind of take that way and just totally neglect where Slayton is. So in my opinion, I think either McLeod or Darby, more than likely uh, it's, it's hard to say which one one of those players was supposed to take the deep half and they did not so there was supposed to be somebody on the deep half to cover Slayton's route and then somebody underneath to cover by the sticks just in case it was a hitch route or something like that and neither McLeod or Darby did that and Slayton just blew right past him so it was a breakdown in coverage and just you know the speed of Slayton you just can't once you make a mistake as a defense you can't catch up to him right. in that those kind of situations so I mean the Eagles just backed out of their play call went to something where I think it was supposed to be some sort of cover two did not work for the Eagles and it was a touchdown and it was good on Eli to kind of recognize the fact that hey no one's covering that half he probably imagine he saw the safety flare that way and saw nobody deep and he was like this is going to be a pitch and catch right here yep and that gave the Giants a little bit of a lead but then we flip forward to the second half where that offense slows down so let's focus on the defense and kind of what happened there and what allowed the Eagles to get back in this game. But we'll start, actually, in the third quarter with 628 when the Eagles were faced with a third and five. Break this one down, Nick. This is when the Eagles really started hitting their stride as an offense and adjusting, and then James Betcher just did not adjust back, and that was the issue. This is a third and five play. They had pre-snap motion 
which constantly confused this defense throughout the game, the pre-snap motion that the Eagles were using. I mean, Boston Scott initially lined up outside with DeAndre Baker, but then he motions near the near side of Carson Wentz, forcing an adjustment by this defense. And you could see Baker and Ogletree communicating pre-snap. Then right before the snap, Scott motions to the field, the total opposite of where he started initially. And then the ball is snapped and no one follows Scott. I mean, Ogletree points at him. And then Julian Love was late to kind of just start sprinting over there. So it might have been Julian Love's assignment, something that Julian Love was unaware of at the time, which is definitely a big issue with this defense when it comes to all the miscommunications that result in big plays. And then Scott is out on a motion flare with nobody near him. And this is a very well-designed play by Mike Rowe and a high-leverage situation in this game where the Eagles need to win. I mean, it's a very, very important situation. This is just a third and five, and Crow uses this man coverage against it. I mean... If there was a really tight formation from the Eagles, they were really, really tight. So there was going to be a lot of space out there. And they knew they were in man coverage because there was no one even close to being outside of these receivers. So, I mean, the Giants just did not account for Scott and nobody picked him up on that flare route for an easy first down. And it just kind of started. <laughs> it just started the yeah. uh, the trend of the pre-snap motion that would just confuse his defense the rest of the game. I feel like you're right, Nick. That was the turning point in this game and why the Giants weren't able to win this game. And obviously, you know, we can look at it from the 30,000-foot view, and it's probably a better thing that they lost because it gives them a better chance to get this generational prospect like Chase Young. But just from the, you know, ma- the, ma- the micro, or I guess the viewpoint of winning and losing football games, this is where it turned, you know? This is where you started to see the Eagles take advantage of things the Giants didn't adjust to. And then we see it again with 13:59 in the fourth quarter, and the Giants defense has another breakdown. So dive into that one. Yeah, with that one, the, uh, it was right after Kelsey was <laughs> absolutely dominated by Dexter Lawrence on an uh, inside play, which I feel like Lawrence gave Kelsey all that he can handle in this game, which is really good to see. Obviously, Kelsey's a smaller offensive center, not the biggest guy for an interior offensive lineman, but just seeing Dexter Lawrence be able to dominate a tech, uh, technician like that is great. You can check out my Twitter. I put up a, a, a blip of him doing that on the uh, goal line. But anyways, the Eagles went back to motioning Boston Scott around on this specific play as well. This was originally lined up outside and then brought back into the backfield, which bumped Jack Rabbit inside over the top of Zach Ertz who was the inline tight end. And then Scott just ran, again, another flare out, simple, in the flat, little flare out to the same side with only one man to beat in space. And that man was Jackrabbit, who he easily juked out to pick up significant yardage for the Eagles. And I was trying to analyze this and see if it was Jackrabbit being Jackrabbit, which we've become used to, but it seemed like he might have just been juked out here. But it would not surprise me if Jackrabbit made another business decision. He's been doing that basically since he signed that big deal with the Giants. And on this play, man, Sam Beal needs to also break down and work on his open field tackling. He weakly down the field shoved a shoulder into Scott. And if it wasn't for Antoine Bethea, who had a hell of a game, Antoine Bethea played fantastically in this game, obviously against the run. But, dude, he played great. But if it wasn't for Bethea on this play, this could have been a touchdown because Sam Beal just throws his shoulder into Scott. Scott seems to run through it. And then at that same time, Bethea kind of comes in and just jumps on top of, on top of uh, Boston Scott. But... Boston Scott's like five foot seven. I mean, he's not an overly big guy. You want to see better tackling mechanics, better tackling fundamentals, even from your defensive backs in these situations. And this was just another play where the Eagles were using that pre-snap motion and uh, getting the Giants off guard. And the Giants were getting really tired at this point, and you could tell. Yeah, because even right away, right after that 12-20 remaining in the fourth quarter, it's third and seven. The Giants put, again, put them in a really good spot. The Giants were doing a really good job still at the line of scrimmage here, especially from a run defense standpoint. 
But, you know, Wentz is able to move the chains again here. What do you attribute this to? Yeah, this was a really good play design by Mike Rowe. Again, third and seven. And the Eagles utilizing the Giants' own numbers against them and adjusting so much pre-snap to their defense. This is a three-by-one set with Wentz in the shotgun and Ogletree sugaring that near side A gap, which left that three-by-one with two defenders and no one over the number three option, which was Zach Ertz. At the snap, Ogletree retreats to cover Ertz, but the adjustment by the Eagles was to have Ertz flatten his route towards the sideline and have the number one receiver and the number two receiver in that three-by-one set block their respective defenders, creating an opportunity for Ertz just to follow those blocks and run away from Ogletree, who was the only unblocked defender in that area. But since he was sugaring that A-gap, since he was faking that blitz, what happened? He couldn't get over to Ertz, who was, had all that space to operate with two blockers blocking their respective people. So it was another really good play designed by Micro and the aggressiveness of the Giants or the fake aggressiveness in this case was used against the Giants and they just did not adjust. Yep. And just once again, another play where you can pretty much say Ogletree was not in a great position to make a play in coverage. And yeah. That, in, in this one, in this one, it was more by design though. I mean, I'll yeah. bash Ogletree, uh, you know, a, a ton for a lot of other mistakes, but this one, it was by design. It was a hard, it was a hard assignment for him to execute given the route and the play yeah. call the Eagles had. That's fair. I mean, I, you're right about that. It just seems like we hear his name called a lot in these situations, and we're just not ma- he's just not making enough plays and coverage in general. But again, finally, the Giants still have a chance to win this game. There's 339 remaining in the fourth quarter. It's first and 10, and this just seems like the easiest 28 yards of the game to me. It's Carson Wentz, the Dallas Goddard. What happened on this play with the Giants in coverage? Yeah, it's just a first and 10. Another example of pre-snap motion not being accounted for correctly. And you have Goddard motions to the field as the number three and the Giants linebackers shift. But both Mayo and Ogletree take Sanders out of the backfield on the flare, something they've kind of been abused with this entire game was that flare route. But none of them changed their assignments to Goddard. And it was just two verticals to that side with a deep horizontal breaker. Goddard was the number three at the snap, but went around the number two wide receiver who was on the line of scrimmage right after the snap, which also created some sort of confusion with the coverage on the back end. But it was either on Mayo or Ogletree to switch their assignments, which neither of them did. Again, this is this defense is a little bit complicated. It seems like a lot of miscommunication. Nobody accounts for a tight end down the field, wide open for an easy catch and a huge play for the Eagles. Yep, and this is just kind of, again, microcosm of this defense. How is... One of their only two, their second biggest threat in this game coming into the game, Dallas Goddard, at least in my mind, but just in this position to make such a, such a big play out of this, on this specific down, in this specific situation. But it's kind of the Giants' defense this season, it seems. And then finally, Nick, the one, the one play, final play we want to get to before we break down some players is the touchdown in overtime because that's the one that's been talked about the most this week. seems like the Giants were just completely fooled by this or just unprepared. And what did you make of this play? Yeah, the touchdown in overtime, it uh, kind of it, it drills home just the story of this Giants season. Right. I mean, the Eagles utilized what? Pre-snap motion again with Ertz starting outside and coming inside with a similar type of route concept as well. I mean, it was just the same type of route concept that happened on the first touchdown, similar at least. An angled seam bending back inside. The last touchdown in the red zone was more of a vertical angle route from Ertz back inside that was covered well by Love, but it was just... He was just a bit too late, but this route just went totally unnoticed by Alec Ogletree, who 
was focused on that little snag route from Arcega Whiteside. And then there was the flat from Goddard. So he had his eyes on both of that. No one accounted for Ertz just coming in right behind. I mean, I'm not sure if it was because of the pre-snap motion. Maybe he just did not check the fact that Ertz was moving towards in the inside a little bit like that. But it doesn't seem like this team is prepared for these route combinations or even they do some sort of film work it doesn't seem like, it doesn't seem like they they have any kind of awareness and Ogletree usually is the culprit in a lot of these kind of situations I mean this is a uh, lack of awareness they just don't adjust to this pre-snap motion it's an incompetence it's so many things that just go wrong and this was an easy touchdown in a situation where the one person you really need to be focused on is Zach Ertz and nobody even paid him any attention <laughs> at the snap and it's uh it's a damn shame yeah it's the fact that this game was won by Zach Ertz catching a touchdown when when no one's focusing on the Eagles' only threat really in the red zone. It's just, it's it's mind-boggling, and it's, it is what it is. It's what happens when you're a team that's 2-11. Hopefully you guys won't have to watch this for long. Hopefully they can find a way to turn this around and be an awesome story for the 2020 season. But right now, this is what happens, and that's why they're losing games they should win. And this was definitely a game they should have won. But Nick, before we uh, dive into some questions from the listeners, I do want to break down some players specifically. And one that stood out to me the most, Nick, and I want to see if you feel the same way. But I did also focus on uh, on this specific position group. But the one who stood out to me the most was DeAndre Baker. I thought this was Baker's best game as a pro. I thought he was locked in on coverage all game from what I saw. What were your thoughts as someone who knows a little more about kind of cornerback play and what I should be looking for? Yeah, I uh, actually just got done writing a piece on DeAndre Baker for Big Blue View. This was by far his best game in pro football focus. And pro football focus isn't everything, but it does have metrics that measure football. And they had him rated as this their best game as well. Uh, what did he have? He had three pass breaks up in this game. I want to say he was targeted five times, only surrendering that one catch in the red zone to Arcega Whiteside for seven yards. And he was just locked down. He was in phase. He was... He showed a lot of fluidity in his hips, even when he would make the wrong decision. There were a couple routes where he would, where the subtle move would have him slightly commit his hips one direction, and then the receiver would go back inside, and he could just easily transition with his hips and stay right in the hip pocket of the wide receiver. So those are things that you look for in the cornerback position, the fluidity of hips, the ability to stay in phase, in and out of breaks, and those were things I was never really overly concerned about with DeAndre Baker. That and physicality, I'm not concerned about those things. It's all the mental thing. And he didn't make any big mental mistakes. And in the last three games, I want to say that he's only surrendered two catches on 12 targets. That was two catches for about 32 yards. So he's not being abused and targeted like he used to. Maybe that could be attributed to the fact that Ballantyne and Haley were out there. And I do feel like DeAndre Baker, even though he split in time with Sam Beal, I think it's good for DeAndre Baker that he split in time with Sam Beal to take him off the field, have him kind of clear his head a little bit. But at the same time, I think DeAndre Baker is a better player than Sam Beal. I think it's just kind of looking at the film. Baker shows traits that are just uh, more alluring to me than, say, Beal, who I feel yeah. like is more susceptible to double moves, doesn't isn't as sticky in coverage as Baker. And I just think Baker could be a player for this team. And I know he's much maligned because of the mistakes that have happened. And people seem to remember what happens earlier in the season than they do towards the midseason and towards the end of the season. But the mental mistakes are the things I worry about. And the loafing, that's a huge thing. And he did that back in Georgia. So this coaching staff and everybody needs to make sure that he's locked in and dialed in. But the traits are there. And I know we say that every week, but it's just apparent. 
Yeah, there's no way you could, you should not be giving up on DeAndre Baker. DeAndre Baker is going to be a player for this team. I'm going to stand by that. I'm going to put my name on that. I'm fine with that. He was an elite coverage cornerback in the SEC against some really awesome wide receivers on a weekly basis. And yeah, it took him a little while to get used to this this complicated defensive system and and being in the right spots at right times. But you know, he's definitely improving as the season goes. So he's the one who stood out the most to me. But what about Leonard Williams? I thought he also had a really good game for the Giants. Yeah, he definitely did. On the first uh, uh, Zimenez sack, you can also attribute that to Leonard Williams, who gets that interior pressure, because it looked like it could have been a stump, but I don't believe it was. He just gets really good upfield pressure to just take the offensive guard away, and then he kind of just creates a lane for OX to come underneath into the pocket and hit Carson Wentz. And Leonard Williams, he was getting his hands up. He was good against the run. I mean, I think Leonard Williams, he's going to get a lot of criticism because of the trade. And look, I didn't like giving up a third round pick for him in the, given the context of everything that was going on, but Leonard Williams is a player still. He's still a very good player. And I think he shows it every week. And sometimes it doesn't pop up on the stat sheet. He had a half sack in this game, but I do see just every time I watch the all 22 film, I see Leonard Williams making some sort of play that will probably go unnoticed or a hurry or a pressure or something along those lines. And yeah, I agree a hundred percent. I think Williams had a really good game. Yep. For sure, without a doubt there. And then another player who stood out to me, for uh, it just keeps making plays, and I know we talked about it on the Takeaways podcast, but what did you see from Julian Love on the All-22 and kind of a, you know, again, different position for him in that safety role than he really played at college? He's faster than I would think. I want to say it was the play where Carson Wentz rolled out and he, Julian Love was on the opposite side of the field, and you just see this player take an excellent angle and dart all the way across the field, across the line of scrimmage, and just meet Carson Wentz. I want to say it was Wentz on the sideline, and I was just like, okay, like that was from the opposite side of the field. Why aren't the other Giants running like that? So it's just popping up on film. He's another one who seems like he's sticky in coverage. He's not getting overly burnt. Even the touchdown that he surrendered to Ertz, he was right there and literally just missed it. And yeah. I hate saying, oh, he just missed it, but... He was in position. It wasn't like he was just burnt on the route or anything like that. He just failed to get his hands on the ball. One that thing was I will a say, ball, by the way, by Wentz. It was. Yeah, it was a very, very strong throw uh, upfield, all those things. But the one thing I will say about Love that was a negative, and I thought he had a good game, but he did get juked in space twice in this game where I was like, ah, Love, come on, man. And he knew it. He got up. He slapped his hands. He was like, come on, you know. But uh, he, he did get juked twice in space where he missed a tackle, one where he was the contained defender on the outside. So you never want to give up that outside containment, and he did. So those are things that you're just like, okay, hopefully that doesn't happen. Hopefully it doesn't become a trend, but it is something that I noticed. Yeah, and I think – Baker, Williams, Love, all of those players, all three of those players are and should be a part of this core defense in the future. Um, now, whatever they're going to have to pay Williams is whatever they're going to have to pay him. Maybe franchise tag him, put that decision off for a year, whatever it is. He's going to be a player who's going to be a positive. I do believe that. And I know I don't want to get into what they had to pay to acquire him and why I think that was ridiculous. But the point is, he's one of the best players on the defense right now. And he's somebody who will be even better, like we've seen from those interior guys in San Fran, you know. That San Fran had two guys very with very similar prospects to, or sorry, very very similar skill sets to Leonard Williams, who weren't making that many plays prior to this year on the defensive line. And the minute they bring a dominant edge like Bosa into the mix, now those guys are making plays all the time. And I don't think that's a coincidence. Exactly. And if you like pay attention to any big personalities on Twitter and things along those lines, DeForest Buckner, who wasn't making all those plays. People who watched 49ers film in and out, like we do with the Giants, they were saying DeForest Buckner is a beast. Yeah. Like he's a good player, but it just wasn't getting the stat or the sacks or anything like that. This, those kind of stats that, you know, some fans measure 
like success on is sacks. Right. You watch the film, you can just see he's he can be a player for a team. And I'm wondering with the uh, the new coaching staff, if there's going to be a new coaching staff, how that affects all these decisions because that's obviously going to have a huge impact on all that too. No doubt, without a doubt. And speaking of Buckner, like it's interesting because, and also our, our obviously Armstead there was considered a bust until this season for the 49ers yeah. and is playing much better with Bosa in the mix there. But it's interesting you mentioned. Buckner, because that's a player the Giants were actually reportedly, and from what I've heard from one guy who I think was very close to the Odell Beckham situation, he gave me some really, I'm not going to reveal who he was or anything like that, but he gave me some really good info around that trade in the in the 48 hours before the trade was finalized with Cleveland. But one of the guys the Giants really wanted from San Fran, in addition to that number two overall pick, if they weren't going to get it, was Buckner. It was a way to try to get that trade moving again in the right positive direction. But the 49ers did not want to give him up. Um, so that just shows, you know, Dave Gettleman was hell-bent on finding a player like Buckner Williams to put into this defense. Um, and maybe it's kind of a two-part plan. You get a guy like that, and then you, you pair him with a dominant edge like a Bosa or like a Chase Young, and you see what can happen for the defense. So I'm really excited if the Giants do get a chance to get Chase Young into this defense, how big of a leap it can take. Because I do believe that, especially with Baker kind of starting to show what I always kind of believed he could, that this defense could take a massive jump next year. Obviously, contingent on getting a player like Chase Young, and you know it's very high regard I'm giving for Young, and I should probably you know spend a little bit more time breaking him down. But from everything I've read and from everything I've seen, both I mean I'm watching Big Ten football. I've seen almost every Ohio State game this season, and he's a difference maker. He's a dominant player. He's was suspended for a couple games and still countless pressures. In addition to being double teamed all the time, so he's a freak, and he could really affect this Giants defense. But let's talk about another player who's kind of been. I don't want to say disappeared recently in recent weeks, but hasn't been. We haven't talked about him as much, and that's O'Shane Eximinens. You thought he had a good game, am I right, Nick? Yeah, he played 28 snaps. I thought that he, I mean, he got two sacks, so that's showing up on the stat sheet. But the ways he got the sacks, I mean, he wasn't converting speed to power. He didn't become J.J. Watt all of a sudden, but he was just very heady with his decision making. Like the one sack, Leonard Williams went up. He saw an alley inside, so he went right inside. And the second snap, he was on an island with an offensive lineman, and the offensive lineman gave him an inside release. So he just utilized a quick double swipe move. And he, O'Shane has a really quick couple steps. So, I mean, he just used the double swipe, went right inside. He got the sack on Carson Wentz. And three total pressures in this game. I think uh, I think he had a solid game, and that's what you want from him because I don't believe O'Shane Zimenez right now in his career is somebody that is going to be your number two pass rusher or even. He's more of a rotational guy right here. That's why he's playing these limited snaps. He was out there. 17 of those 28 snaps were for pass rushing situations. So I look at O'Shane and I say, okay, that's what you want. You want somebody who can come in and get pressures and possibly get sacks. In these kind of situations, he did that. So I was happy to see that he was able to get on the stat sheet and make an impact in this game, albeit the team ends up losing. But still, that's kind of progression you want to see from the young players. Yeah, and one thing I was interested to hear about from you, Nick, was the play of the right side of the offensive line. I actually thought, especially for an Eli Manning game where things can go disastrous fast in the pocket and you can start to turn see plays turn really bad fast, um, I thought the right side played really well with Zeitler and Remmers over there. Um, and obviously next to Jalapio, who I, again, just was not impressed with in this game at all. But really, is it possible that, like, Zeitler is going to be here next year. He's a, he's a good player, and I thought he played a great game this game specifically. But is it possible that Remmers might be kind of more than just a one-year stopgap solution there for the Giants? Because I thought he had another good, like, solid game. And overall, I feel like he's been pretty solid when healthy this year. I think a lot of it depends on what happens with the coaching staff and what happens with Dave Gettleman. Remmers is linked to both of those 
right. people. So if both of them are canned, I don't know if Remmers is going to be back. But I think Remmers has been an adequate to solid starter for this team. He's not somebody who's getting beat week in, week out. He's not a huge difference maker either where he's clearing like insane holes or anything like that. But he's somebody that you can start and you can win with, but you're not winning because of him. But he's not a huge liability either. He's just a solid person there maybe somebody you're looking to upgrade on if that makes sense but no i feel like he filled in valiantly a lot of another thing about remmers that's been his achilles heel this entire his most of his career was his injuries and he's been relatively healthy the most of this season was something that we didn't necessarily expect either but yeah jalapio i did not feel like he had a great game there were a couple plays where he was just fall 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 on his ass or something along those lines or missed an assignment or did not leverage his blocks correctly things along those lines where i was like ah shit like you don't really want to see that from your starting offensive lineman but you're right though the right side of the offensive line with eli manning there i feel like they held up uh, valiantly in this game and just uh you know i could bring up the name that everybody everybody's thinking right now since we're talking about the offensive line nate solder that's the one where it's just it has not been good he has not won a lot of one-on-one matchups than big situations. I mean, that flea flicker, Dan, people were criticizing it. And I know Booger came out and said, why would you run a flea flicker there? It didn't fool the defense. Well, it did. It fooled the shit out of the defense. And all the Giants needed was Nate Solder to hold that block up another half second. But he was just beat. And no, that would have been a touchdown. Me because I was one of the ones who criticized that. And I still somewhat stand by my criticism to 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 a large extent because – I get it. It's a play that was designed well to work if you don't have Nate Solder in one-on-one protection on a third and long situation where the defensive end has no run responsibility. I just don't think that Nate Solder is going to ever hold up long enough there for that play to work, and that's the key to that play. You need pass pro there, and you need one-on-one pass pro on an obvious passing down for a certain amount of time to make that work. And again, like it's a good play call because it got somebody wide open, sure. But like at the same time, it never came to fruition because of Nate Solder. And it's not like what he displayed on that snap was some bad, you know, some aberration, just a bad snap from him. He's breaking down. His body's breaking down. He's not, he's not nearly playing as good as he did last season. And most people didn't even like how he played last season for the Giants. So clearly a lot of his play in recent years before he signed the big contract was you know, some, somehow Dante Sarnecchia driven, it seems. I mean, the Patriots' legendary offensive line coach because, you know, what he's done over there with guys like Marshall Newhouse somehow playing left tackle for a portion of the season for the Patriots and all the work he's done with various different offensive linemen who've come in and out the door there in New England is impressive. But with Solder, we're getting to the point where it doesn't even matter what the cap it's going to be, and it's going to be a sizable chunk. They're going to have dead cap next year if they cut him, but they just simply probably have to move on from him anyway. Um, to be completely honest with you at this point, Nick, because I just don't know. And again, it's not as easily said as done, said and done as that, Nick, because there are no options probably available on the free agent market. In the draft, there's probably no options available, especially if they go young. They're not going to be able to find a day one starter in round two. I mean, they might, but he's probably going to struggle mightily, maybe even worse than Solder. This is the state of t- offensive tackle in the NFL, and that's why they signed Solder in the first place to such a big deal. So we'll see what they can do there. The Patriots have gotten creative there over time, over the time uh, in their franchise history. The, the Cowboys have as well. They have a really good backup tackle in Cameron Fleming who kind of went under the radar and signed their cheap and re-signed their cheap as well. I don't really understand how they're able to do that. But the Giants need to figure out something at that offensive tackle position. And if it's only one spot that gets upgraded, Nick, I'm fine with that if they want to bring back Remmers because I do kind of feel like Remmers is a solid offensive tackle. And it's really hard to find even solid offensive tackles in the NFL in my opinion. So anyway, before we dive into some questions from the listeners, I do want to get your overall take on Ogletree because 
I got a text yesterday uh, from Nick, and it was simply, Ogletree is hashtag not good. So what did you see from Ogletree that really stood out to you, and why was he somebody you wanted to touch on? It's the same thing that I see every week from Alec Ogletree, essentially. And I don't mean to sit here and just absolutely bash the crap out of Ogletree, but Ogletree plays significant snaps on this defense. He's the linebacker, the go-to linebacker that everyone thinks about when you think about the New York Giants defense. I mean, he played the most snaps, 88 total snaps. And it's just not his tackling at times. He just doesn't go into the hole and stick people like you see normal starting linebackers. He rarely finds the hole. He usually, like, it seems like he waits for blocks to come to him and then waits. He doesn't go and attack. He's not instinctual with in his run fits or anything like that. It seems like that's another reason why this Giants team struggled earlier on against teams like Minnesota, against teams like Arizona, even, and even Dallas with the horizontal uh, rushing attack that they were utilizing against the Giants. Ogletree is just that linebacker that is not hitting his run fits well and clogging holes. And then there's him against the pass. He was targeted eight times, Dan. And he surrendered eight total receptions. He doesn't seem to have a sense of awareness of his assignments when he is executing a zone type of like in zone coverage, you could say, because I know the Giants, they run a lot of like zone match things along those lines. So we can get into all that, but that is a whole nother can of worms. But Alec Ogletree doesn't seem to have that kind of awareness to know when people are behind him. And that's why mesh routes with the snag over top. He's been poor against those. He's been poor when it comes to the seams He's been poor when it comes to really anything that comes behind him from the outside, like that Zach Ertz touchdown to end the game. Ogletree has just been doing this several, several times. He'll get He'll get tackles. He'll require some of those stats, things along those lines, but also miss a lot of tackles. And I just feel like when the Giants traded for him, I didn't like this trade that much. The thing I liked about him was the fact that I think he could have had success blitzing in James Betcher's scheme. I remember I wrote an article on Inside the Pylon about this trade, and I didn't like it. But I said, hey, he might be able to be a solid blitzer for this scheme. But that hasn't even really come to fruition. I just think he's a washed player at this point. And it's just... uh, Definitely somebody the Giants need to upgrade on in this offseason. In the pass, in the run, he's just not exactly uh, – he's not a solid player. He's a marginal to adequate starter in this league. Yeah, eight, eight targets, eight receptions, 94 yards for Ogletree in this game. Just one-third almost of the Eagles passing yards. Really just a terrible game uh, for him again. And this is it for him. This is not going to be a difficult decision. They're going to have to get rid of him. I don't care if Gettleman's still in his GM, Shermer is head coach, God forbid. But they got to get rid of him no matter what. Um, and I think they will. But anyway, Nick, let's dive into some questions from the listeners before we move forward and turn the chapter on week 14. And Bobby Madelon asks, if Dave, if Dave Gettleman stays, would it look worse for him to let Leonard Williams go or sign him for like $15 million a year? What is the most that you guys would sign him for? Also, what else do the Giants do in practice besides tweet and play ping pong? See, I really like ping pong, but <laughs> no, nah, no, nah, but I do like ping pong. But uh, yeah, I'm not sure. I'm sure they practice a lot, Bobby. I am. But uh, it just doesn't, you know, show on Sunday when it comes to wins and losses, which is abysmal. But when it comes to Williams, I mean, I think uh, if he's going to really demand the to set reset the market, which I don't believe he is, I think he was asking for Aaron Donald type of money with a cap that consistently goes up. I'm not going to be fully opposed to re-signing him. I know a lot of Giant fans are saying that's crazy. Aaron Donald money's not Aaron Donald. But this is kind of how the NFL works is when you're a very good player, which Leonard Williams is, and it's your time to get paid, 
you usually reset the market. I don't think Williams is looking to reset the market. I think he's looking to get a big payday. He knows the cap goes up every year. His agents know the cap go up every single year. So with that happening, him making something along those lines, it might be something that happens. And I think Gettleman would resign him at a number around that, like 14 or something along, something around there. And I, I'm not going to say I'm totally opposed to it either. The Giants haven't really had too many cap issues in the past. And, uh, yeah, I'm actually excited to see what Dan has to say about this too. But uh, I think Leonard Williams is somebody you can really utilize at his age and with his skill set, especially if you pair him with somebody like Chase Young, if that's the direction this team is headed in. Yeah, I mean, I think there's still a failsafe here, Bobby and Nick, the, and that would be that franchise tag, which I can certainly place on Leonard Williams and give them buy them some time. But yeah. even even assuming they don't do that, I don't know if we're looking at fifteen million because again, he is still in the interior side of the ball where they're not. It's not edge money. He's not looking for edge rusher top pay. And he even said like, I'm not looking for Aaron Donald money. He knows he's not at that level, but he just thinks he's kind of that tier below. Um, and that tier below might be in the 12, 13 range. Who knows, really? It's hard to guesstimate right now without seeing more contracts signed. But for me, I'm kind of with Nick. I, this team has never had cap problems. They have so much, and they have so much cap space now coming off the books. Eli's contract's off the books. Odell's contract's off the books. Their their last of the JPP dead money is off the books, even dating back to that. And Damon Harrison's dead money off the books. They're clearing a ton of cap space, and they've never had cap issues. In my opinion, in general, salary cap issues are very overrated by uh, you know fans and and even some writers because they just don't kind of understand that you know some of these teams are not spending most of their cap. Some of these teams are just reaching the cap floor like the Bengals and such like that, and they're carrying over 40, 50 million every offseason, and the Giants aren't doing that. They're spending every last dollar of their cap pretty much every single season, and there hasn't been one single time where, where you've looked back and you've said, well, if they had given him 11 million versus 15 million, they would have been able to do X and Y, and that just doesn't happen in the NFL. Again, free agency is not very very uh, fluid, you know, there's not that much talent that you really need or should be spending on a free agency. Um, and really this is done through the draft. You build winning rosters to the draft and you resign those players. So for where the giants are at right now, it's not going to matter if they sign him for a couple million more per year or not. So for me, it's going to look worse if they let him go. He's a, he's a true player. I'm happy they have him. I don't, I wish they had just waited until free agency and, and and offered him probably the biggest contract in the market, whatever they're going to eventually sign him for. And then he still would have had that top 65 pick, but they didn't do that. And that's, you know, can't cry over spilled milk at this point. I'm just happy he's going to be on the roster. I think moving forward, Ezra Sackle asks, despite having solid stats, pro football focus has Marcus golden graded 57.6 overall. Do you agree with that grade? It seems like you're higher on him, which I'm actually not necessarily, but I'll get to that in a minute. And what do you think might be deflating his grade? Well, pro football focus, how they usually measure their grades, is based on not just their ability to get pressure and things like that, but they'll throw like coverage stats in there and things along yep. those lines. Like their specific grades for coverage, their specific grades for tackling, and then they kind of aggregate all of their grades and then that comes out to their defensive grade, which I believe is what you're referring to with Marcus Golden and pro football focus. But I, uh, I, I would probably not say that, but I don't really know their exact algorithm on how they come up with that. With the um, with the grades, I know that they do aggregate all those uh, categories that I named before, but I, I don't think that he's a 50. And I think a 50 is, uh, well, I don't know. Is a 50 a solid, Dan? Do you know? Well, he has a 57.6, which is probably a little bit below average. But again, like you said, 55, he's a 55 grade in coverage, and he's above 60 in uh, in pass rush and in run defense. 
which is yeah, still okay. not necessarily great. But again, I don't know. You can dive into this and I'll give my spiel. Yeah, I'm not uh, like, I mean, again, Pro Football Focus, they do great work with what they do, but like, that, that's not everything. Film is still a little bit different when it comes to that. I know they watch film and they have their grading system, but I wouldn't, you know, say just because Pro Football Focus has, says this means that it's necessarily true. I'm fine with that grade, though. I think it should be somewhere, I guess, around there. I think he's a solid starter in the in the league, a solid starter. He's not, you know, a very, very good starter or a good starter. He's just a solid player, somebody that you want on your team, somebody that you can win with. And he has, you know, taken advantage and gotten a decent amount of sacks this year. He's not necessarily uh, – doing it uh, uh well he's doing it at a good rate but because you know what does he have uh eight and a half nine and a half sacks this year i think purple focus has him at 10 because i don't know if they account for half sacks but uh he's not somebody you want to be your number one pass rusher but he's definitely somebody that i feel the giant i would like the giants to resign yeah i'm a little bit uh here's here's the deal for me with golden ezra and it's interesting if you listen back and this is probably a year and a half ago or not a little less than that but if you listen back to the first podcast we broke down Golden after the Giants signed him, it was evaluating his tape in Arizona, and it's kind of the same player he was on tape there. He's not he's somebody who plays at a high effort level, and he's one of those high effort players, and a lot of his sacks are from that, you know, from those high effort situations. And he doesn't not necessarily someone who wins with edge bend or at, uh, in one on one situations or by bull rushing his ta- the tackle or anything like that or putting on a nice spin move. And he, he doesn't really have too many moves in his arsenal. Again, he's a high effort player, which has value on a football team. It really does. And it just kind of comes down to how much he's going to be asking for. I think if he's going to point to the sack total and say, I have X amount of sacks, I should be paid X amount of dollars. The Giants, in my opinion, should certainly let him go because, again, he's I don't think these type of high effort players should be deserve to be paid high money. And even though I just gave a spiel about how, you know, the cap is not that important, they're going to be handing a ton of cap dollars to Leonard Williams. And if they do draft well, and if these two 2018 and 29 rookie, 2019 rookies progress well, well, those guys are going to have to get paid as well. And at some point, it will become a problem if they do draft well. So for me with Golden, I'm willing to let him go if he wants top dollar. But we'll kind of just see where that goes after the season and kind of have to see what his value is on the free agent market as well. Because um, I don't think he'll be someone who will be resigned before he hits the market. Jason Torrance asks, thoughts on reports coming out that Gettleman told management he suggests they fire Pat Shermer. I'm really hesitant about him conducting another coaching cycle, uh, free agent draft cycle. Well, my thing with getting rid of Gettleman, and I know Dan and I have talked about this, I would be okay with it if they have a replacement that they believe in. It's not just getting rid of him for getting rid of him's sake. If you get rid of Gettleman, this is the tricky thing. All these young players that we gush over and we like their progress, what exactly happens with them? Is Daniel Jones going to be the quarterback? Because you're going to bring in somebody else who's more than likely going to want his guy. And is, is it going to be Daniel Jones? At first, you'll hear reports that, yeah, yeah, it's Daniel Jones, it's Daniel Jones, but a couple slip-ups, and then Daniel Jones never actually gets a fair shake, and he's gone. So you really, like, when it comes to replacing Gettleman, you need to have somebody that is interested in this job, somebody that the Giants brass ha- giants ownership and everything have a, a real solid plan so that's going to blow everything up and i don't really know much about the reports gettleman says Sherman gonna be fired i think Sherman's gonna be fired i think it's about 95 percent sure at this juncture but yeah when it comes to replacing gettleman you just need somebody and i believe i said this on last podcast that is going to replace him and that's something that it just they just don't grow on trees okay they just don't yeah and here's my take on this jason 
it's not really reports. I looked it up and did some legwork and research here. It's one report from Incarcerated Bob. I'll just stop you right there, Jason. I don't <laughs> know why, but Incarcerated Bob is has been wrong a lot more than he's been right. He's got a couple random lucky things right because you could just guess and make reports about anything. And if you're like, you could easily just guess things. Like he's saying that Gettleman told management or told Mara that he suggests Shermer should be fired. What is he even really saying there? It's stupid. It's like obvious maybe that could have happened, but like who cares? That doesn't say anything. And this guy is a total fraud. So don't listen to incarcerated Bob um, in general. And I think that applies in this situation. Last question for the, for the show today is from All Things Giants. And he says, with Gates the next man up for Zeitler, how do you think he translates to guard as opposed to tackle? I think there will be some power challenges. Yeah, there could definitely be some power challenges, especially in bull rush situations. Gates is a pretty tall guy. I, I did a thing on Gates for Big Blue View as well. And uh, it seemed like in with defensive players that had a wider angle that got him in the bull rushing situation he struggled with, that's not going to necessarily happen too much at the interior offensive line position as it would at the tackle position. But yeah, I think he would need a little bit more sand in his ass to play that guard position at a high level or a solid level but again i i'm fine with seeing how it materializes because this is a young player and he could show some really positive things like he did when he started tackle and that's something that the giants need right now is just to see positive things that can uh the giants can leverage and use in the future yeah no doubt about it all right guys thanks again for tuning into this podcast and we will speak to you again this weekend, after the Giants play the Miami Dolphins in a pivotal game for draft position this Sunday night, we'll have a quick takeaways reaction pod. Thanks again for tuning in, as always, guys, even in a tough season like this. And if you want to do your small part to help the show, just please make sure you download this podcast instead of just listening and that you give us a rating and review on iTunes. All those things will really help us. On that note, have a great rest of your week, and we'll speak to you this weekend. is the story of the one as head of maintenance at a concert hall he knows the show must always go on that's why he works behind the scenes ensuring every light is working the hvac is humming and his facility shines with Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces plus 24 7 customer support his venue never misses a beat call quickgranger.com or just stop by Granger for the ones who get it done